Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. William Gibson's new play, Golda's Balcony, is the story of Golda Meir, her life, her love, her work, and it's a significant part of the story of Israel. It's a one-woman play currently being performed by Tova Felchu at the ACT Theater in San Francisco, California, until August 13th. Tova Felchu plays the roles of Golda Meir and those of 38 other people who influenced Golda Meir's life and her work. This play holds the record for the longest-running one-woman play on Broadway. The opening performance of Golda's Balcony in San Francisco created a palpable feeling of appreciation in the theater that evening. I highly recommend seeing it. When Tova Feldshu and I spoke the next day about her work and about Golda Meir, we began when I asked her how the audience affects what she is able to do on stage. Tova Feldshu, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you very much. In seeing your first performance in San Francisco, it looked like the audience was so so there, so powerful. Can you tell us how the audience affects what you do on stage? It affects it enormously in the sense that I'm in a one-person play where I play 38 people, and I'm in direct address to the audience. I'm not looking at another actor. I'm telling the story the people in that room that night, and that room is the Geary Theater, you know, on Geary Street in San Francisco through August 13th. So the chemistry of an audience, whether it's a student matinee or a matinee where more of the older generation is there, makes a tremendous difference in the symbiosis between the actor and, and the audience, if you will. I love my audience. I'm thrilled that they're in the theater. And once they're in the theater, remember, they're already the converted. They're the people who want to hear the story. They're not out on the beautiful streets of San Francisco or even just listening to your wonderful program and thinking about coming. They're already there. So they're my top priority. They and the clarity of the story and the images that impinge on me during the story are my children for that evening, if you will. And uh, the love, you know, I was thinking about this. I've done 600 of these, I guess over, almost almost 700 performances in the last two and a half years. The love of the audience is paramount uh, for this kind of a piece. When you're in concert, it's the same thing. You, you must love the audience, and not for your own vanity. You, you love them the way you love your child. Make sure that they live, they survive, they do well, they're comfortable, they can hear you, they're not straining. You take care of the audience. How do you perceive that or pick that up when you're on stage? You can't see beyond the first couple of rows. Right. It doesn't have to do with sight. It has to do with oral ability. Um, You can feel an older house immediately. The exchange of energy, you're throwing energy out, and it comes back very gently, very gentle. You can feel a young house immediately. It has a marvelous um, literalness and sometimes a silliness to it. They're very moved, the young people. Well, how is the synergy of that energy manifested? Usually, like with most works, it has to do with the reaction time of the audience. Opening night, there was an electricity between myself and the audience that was not to be denied, I think, because they so wanted to be there. And I'm very honored 
to have them in that in that theater. I, I really am. So I start the piece, and the first uh, amusing moment comes out very, very early. And depending on how they respond to that laugh, you know where you're at. And there was resounding response. Well, tell us about Golda Meir, the woman who you bring to life. Golda Meir was born, Goldie Mabovich, in 1898 in Kiev, Russia, and survived the pogroms of Russia. To survive in her life, her parents took their three daughters and emigrated from Kiev, where Jews basically were not even allowed to live. They were given a pass to live in that city because Goldie's father, Moshe, was a fine carpenter, and they needed that tradesperson in the city of Kiev at that time, so he got a, a, a card, an identity card, that it in, allowed him to live inside the walls, let us say, or inside Center City. They emigrated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's where Goldie grew up, and that's where her speech pattern was formed. And she studied till the eighth grade, and she was valedictorian, and her parents didn't want her to go on with school. They wanted her to go to work in the family store. And she fled the house in the middle of the night and went to live with her sister in Denver to matriculate through high school. And then she returned later to Milwaukee when her mother was sick. And they did allow her to go back into high school. And she graduated and then went on to normal school to become a teacher. During this time, during her teenage years, she met and heard David Ben-Gurion speak. And she was imbued with his philosophy, which was basically utopian socialism combined with Zionism. And she was just bitten by the bug that a people, in this case the Jewish people, had a right to live in peace on their own scrap of land, no matter how small, even a postage stamp. And that was what she dedicated her life to, making sure that the Jewish people, the diaspora particularly, the Jews from all over the world who were oppressed and hounded and in many cases slaughtered, would now have a place come and live out their days in peace. And she emigrated to, uh, she made Aliyah, which means to go up to Israel in the spring of 1921 with her intellectual husband, Morris Meyerson. And they lived in Israel, had two children, Menachem and Sarah. And she immediately began working for the Histadrut, for her labor party. And she made tremendous progress in, within the roots of her political party, just through her own dedication. She became part of Ben-Gurion's cabinet. He, in 1956, changed her name from Meyerson to Mayer for Hebrew purity. In 1968, Levi Eshkol, then president of Israel, prime minister of Israel, had a, had a heart attack. And they came to her. She was already in retirement. And they came to her and said, Golda, please prime minister we need to unite the country and they were she was the only person they could agree on and by unanimous vote of the knesset she was voted in as prime minister right after the 67 war she remained prime minister until 1974 you have a line in the play about how she wants to redeem the human rates and ends up in the munitions business that's right how does that juxtaposition affect her life and your life a terrible thing. If we want to look on the bright side of human nature, let us hope that our president didn't go into office already predetermining a war in Iraq. Let us hope that he wanted to go into the business of government and a prosperous country who had a surplus in their budget and in their economy and wanted to run a country. And instead, when he was hit with 9-11, took a curve in the way that he sought to lead this country in order to protect it. Let us hope that that is Mr. Bush's agenda 
surely it was Golda. She came into Israel in a time of tremendous prosperity and optimism in Israel. It was right after the 67 war when Israel had appropriated all this land. And Anwar Sadat uh, took over in 1970 after the death of Nasser. And he said, let's go to the negotiating table. In 1971, we won eight kilometers on the other side of the Suez Canal. We, we need some land. And Golda said to her advisors, uh, today eight kilometers on our side of the Suez and tomorrow Tel Aviv. And she wouldn't have those meetings. She wouldn't give up an inch of land for the 1967 war. And he pledged to take it. And sure enough, in 1973, he staged a surprise and very effective attack on Israel on Yom Kippur in October of 1973. And Golda had been given wrong intelligence. There was a terrible security intelligence mistake, and they were caught with their pants down, Israel. 2,500 boys were killed in two weeks, and some of them were killed in their underwear. They didn't even get out of bed. Losing 2,500 boys in Israel is like losing 150,000 American troops. And losing them where? On our own turf. That's pretty crucial. It's not boys dying in Iraq, which incidentally is horrendous. It is boys dying, uh, our boys dying within the confines of the borders of the United States. It was the greatest crisis of her life. And it's a very interesting meeting point for me because this is the greatest role of my career and I'm playing a woman in the greatest crisis of her life. And in tracing the life of Golda Meir in William Gibson's Golda's Balcony, we trace the life of Jewish-European migration and Jewish history for a 100-year period, basically from 1898 to 1980. Tova Felchu, I want you to describe how that is seen now, how Jewish people and people who aren't Jewish and people who have disrespect for people who are Jewish, for whatever their reason may be, can be influenced by what Golda Meir has done. But first I want to say that on this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Tova Feldshu, who is currently playing Golda's Balcony at the ACT Theater in San Francisco, California. And you're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. First of all, the play is written by an Irish-American Catholic, William Gibson. I think, honestly, he's a genius. Not only did he give us The Miracle Worker and Two for the Seesaw and some great other works, but his erudition regarding the Jewish people, an ethnic group into which he was not born, was not raised, is astonishing. He shadowed Golda Meir in her lifetime to get this material, I could find, as an actress that has been blessed with many, many different roles on a large spectrum, but a lot of phenomenal Jewish women, whether it's Sarah Bernhardt, Stella Adler, or Judy Stein in Kissing Jessica Stein, or Booby in A Walk on the Moon, I know about my roots and my people. I've studied them even in a professional way for the last 25 years uh, to play these roles. He doesn't uh, make a false step, so I'm very grateful for his honor that he has given another ethnic group. That step alone should be noted. Next, what we're doing is we're watching a people in struggle trying to survive. In this case, it's not apartheid. And incidentally, Golda had tremendous ties with the uh, African nations, the new African nations. She went over there a great deal as Minister of Labor before she was Prime Minister and said that what she felt was the truth that the experience of the fledgling African countries was the exact same experience of the Jewish state, which was to poke their heads up above the water and to try to tread water and survive, and with a little bit of grace to reach ashore 
that would hold for them not only peace, but an enriched life of a natural lifespan. In terms of anti-Semitism, blame is the lowest form of consciousness. And of course, it's much easier to get up and blame somebody else for anything rather than take responsibility to, to do it yourself. Certain ill-informed, ill-informed extremist Muslim groups or people who give a bad name to a brilliant religion, Islam is a fine religion. And the bastardization of what has happened to that religion because of these extremist groups who feel obligated to jihad, which is this uh, religious uprising to intifada, and of course the worst is shahada, which is voluntary suicide and martyrdom for the cause of Islam, which really looks like, I think, a bunch of cowards going and killing innocent people. Innocent people on red double-decker buses in London, innocent people in a twin tower, innocent Jewish children in their cribs, in their homes. It takes a real coward to target innocent people. And this is what's happening in the world. We're engaged in a world conflict now between the free world and the civilized world and people who believe that unless you are like they, you don't have a right to exist. Really, the Visigoths are at the gates. And unfortunately, we have to be extremely vigilant and strong. I'm honored to do this piece because this piece at least gives those who don't believe that the Jewish people have a right to exist, it gives them a thread of logic as to why there is a state of Israel, that Israel really was an outgrowth, not just of a Jewish vision, it was an outgrowth of world guilt. Six million Jews had been killed, 11 million people had been killed by Hitler, six million of which were killed only because they were Jews. And in 1947, in response to where to put the remains of the Jewish people, the world voted 33 to 13 in the United Nations to create a patch of land called Israel for the Jews and a Palestinian state. And the Jewish people said, thank you, we accept your terms, we're thrilled, give us anything, give us a triangle to stand on. And the Arab people of that area said, go screw yourselves. We're going to have these people into the sea. And so they asked their brethren, their Arab brethren, to please evacuate the area so they could bomb the hell out of these refugees who had just survived World War II. And lo and behold, a miracle of miracles, these, the refuse of the human world, the backwash, the Jewish people who had survived the concentration camps and their brethren who had lived in Israel, let's say, as pioneers earlier, survived, outnumbered 10 to 1, against five Arab armies in the summer of 1948. And Israel proceeded in their trembling world with great courage. Look, I live in an integrated neighborhood in New York City, and we chose to live there. And I said, you know, Tova, you've talked the talk. Now you're going to walk the walk. You believe in uh, freedom. You believe in a polyglot society. You believe in pluralism. Well... Now you get to live that. I just joined the Y here in San Francisco. And what's wonderful about the Y is that it's a micro UN, it's a mini UN. I'm in the swimming pool and in the sauna naked with different people, different women from different nations from all over this world. And we're just human beings. I also want to say that in studying Golda's Balcony and in studying, quote, the enemy, which I had to do, in studying Tommy Friedman's piece, The Wall and everything, 
the enemy that is the Palestinian for Israel has gets a face. It has a face. And when the enemy is an 11-year-old Palestinian boy who has no place to go, it's not such an enemy anymore. You know, I'm also a mother. This little boy has no infrastructure. There's no mosque for him to go to. There's no why for him to go to. The school is a mess because uh, Arafat has scuttled away billions of dollars for himself instead of giving it to his people to build a sanitation department, a board of education, which I'm sure that Mahmoud Abbas will do a much better job and that he's much more of a partner for peace. So this little boy goes and he talks to the night warriors, the 19-year-old people that are his idols. Well, the night warriors are part of Hamas and part of Hezbollah. Well, let's talk about the children. You um, refer to yourself. You refer to Golda Meir. You say she was a mother and she would do anything to protect her children. And you have the portion in the play when you as Golda went to Cyprus and you talk with people who don't have children and you ask them to trade their place to go to Israel for a child so that a child may live. That's right. Tell us about the children, the importance of the meaning of the children. I think for any civilized society, the children are everything in terms of stereotyping. The Jews and the Italians often get pinned with over-attachment to our children. I think we are over-attached to our children. I think it's great. I think that we are, in many respects, child-centered homes. A devoted parent and a parent who gives a child unconditional but tough love, very often it's like a beautiful garden. The flower survives. The flower thrives. It blooms. Golda's firstborn was really the state, though she loved Menachem and Sarah, you know, to distraction. Those were only her own biological children, but Israel was her primogenitor. And to make sure that this fledgling state survived for all, for the greater good, they needed a younger generation. All these children had been murdered during the Holocaust. Uh, Of course, millions of children had. I think 1.5 million children were murdered. And uh, others were sickly and scarred, and it was crucial that the young survive to make a new Israel. And uh, she went there to Cyprus, uh, the internment camp that the British had set up after World War II, where they stopped thousands of Jews who were uh, immigrating to Israel, stopped them and and, uh, threw them behind barbed wire uh, and only let a trickle come in. She went to Cyprus and said, look, they're letting only 750 Jews a month come in. We must take the children first. Very similar to the kinder transport that went out of Germany with those children on the train and the parents stayed behind. And um, that is why there's that very searing line that was written, you know, many years, was said many years ago, not written, it's one of Golda's lines, but it was said, in the 70s, and one can understand it, she said, there will be peace when the Arabs love their children more than they hate the Jews. Today we could say there will be peace when the extremist Islamists love their children more than they hate free society, let us say. I mean, sending these kids with these bomb packs to die uh, uh, for martyrdom, for the cause, what cause? The cause that you can't, if you're not with Allah, that you're not, you're not worthy of existence? What kind of a cause is that? Elena Rosenman, another guest who's been on Radio Curious, who lives in Jerusalem, calls the uh, suicide bombers, the children who are suicide bombers, the greatest form of child abuse ever. 
Oh my God! Well, it's 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 murder, and they're murdering people, and they're not just murdering people over there, as the as the song would go for World War One. You know, now they're they're in London, they're in Spain. The world is a the world is uncertain of how to manage this. So a young Brazilian electrician gets killed, an innocent guy gets killed in London because he wore a thick coat on that summer day and had a backpack. I was just speaking with one of my beloved children who was abroad, and I said, make sure you are dressed with, with tight-fitting clothes. If you've got an overcoat, put it away. You'll survive. Tight-fitting clothes and, and be careful. You know, they all have knapsacks because they're traveling. Be careful. Uh, try to tr- travel light. Put, leave the knapsack at the hotel. Well, Tova Felju, tell us how you have melded with Golda Meir, and Golda Meir, as you have come to know her, has melded into you, into yourself, in the course of Golda's Balcony. Your questions are so magnificent. I'm very lucky to spend this, even this early hour with you after a two-show day. But the thing is, what an actor prays for is a seamless connection between themselves and the character. And while you do another person, your obligation is to take her needs, her desires, her visions, her dreams before yourself, before your own desires. You take them first, just like your baby in a crib. You make sure that the baby is all right, that that he or she is sleeping well, that they're safe, that you can hear them. You make sure that their welfare is paramount. Same thing when you play a character. So this is what I've done on and off, on and off for two, two years. I've never done a role this long in my career. And people say, don't you get sick of it? And I say, never. You know why I don't get sick of it? Because Golda's bar of contribution to society was so enormous. And the good this story does every time I tell it is so enormous. And the reaction of the audience is so crazy and appreciative that why wouldn't this be the highlight of my day? I mean, this probably ranks up there with... Uh, some of the great blessings that my children have brought me in my own life and my husband. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Golda was very humble and very modest, so I learned a great deal from her. She really has helped me uh, toward the track of humility and uh, modesty. She was not a materialist. She bought her clothes off the rack as Klein, as she says in the play, and she has great bargains there. And you know, whenever I do this play, I tend not to shop. I think I've got to get a bathing suit because I want to see the wine country and whatnot and go to the sea here in California. But um, it's funny. I don't, uh, I don't go into shops. I don't accumulate uh, physical goods, you know, materialistic goods. Gold has had a wonderful influence on me. The most important influence she's had on me is that she's made politics very personal. And I think in this country, with the, with the two-party system that exists now, if you don't make politics personal, you're, you're irresponsible that the Democratic Party has, is trying to, to get back on its feet with a vision and an ethos. And I applaud the Republican Party. They've got their story down. Boy, do they have their story down. They're organized, and they got their stuff together. So their appeal is enormous now in the United States. But we need more of a bilateral approach. And uh, I hope that my party, that the Democrats, get themselves up on their feet again in the, in the coming presidential campaign. Well, Tova Felchu, I'd like to ask you to close by reiterating uh, your quotes of George Bernard Shaw, uh, which was his birthday on the opening night a couple of days ago. 
I will do that. And first I want to invite Governor Schwarzenegger to this piece. Governor Schwarzenegger has been wonderful to the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He has been generous in supporting Holocaust causes throughout his life um, in honor of his own family heritage in Austria. And he's a man that I feel that takes responsibility. It would be a great thing for the Republican Party to come to Golda's balcony because of, of Golda's relationship with Nixon. She loved him, and she credited him with saving the Jewish nation because it was Nixon and Haig that sent in that airlift with Henry Kissinger in 1973 that saved Israel from, uh, well, I won't say from certain defeat, but certainly from a debacle and uh, saved their lives. And uh, that was a decision of a Republican administration to which I know the nation of Israel is most grateful. And now the quote from George Bernard Shaw. I am of the opinion that our lives belong to the community and that as long as we shall live, it is our privilege to do for it whatever we can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a splendid torch which I've got hold of for but one moment in time, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Tova Felju, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And finally, can you tell us about an interesting book that you would recommend? I am reading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's the most extraordinary book. This is my follow-up to What the Bleep Do We Know, a wonderful film about the physics of the mind. Blink also has to do with the physics of the mind and how the fourth dimension in our lives, not just three dimensions, but our intuition, our instincts, and what he calls thin slicing, exists in human behavior at a very, very sophisticated level. It talks about the ability to make snap decisions and how snap decisions are often not at all callow decisions, but often the most brilliant decisions you can make. And it is a fascinating book that deals with the errors of snap decisions like uh, electing Warren Harding as president of the United States because he was tall and good-looking, and he had tremendous social skills, but he had no skills as, as a politico, to um, mistaking a fake work of art for a real work of art based on 14 months of scientific research and coming up with the idea that something that ended up being fake was real. So it's a basically a trust-your-instinct book. I find it very interesting and a very easy read. Malcolm Gladwell, Blink. I was about to say, Golda Meir, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. But I thank Golda, and I thank you, Tova Felchu, for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and may we all have great power of thinking without thinking. That's what Malcolm Gladwell says in the front of his book. Tova Felchu performs the role of Golda Meir in the Broadway play Golda's Balcony, written by William Gibson. For more information on this play, look at www.goldasbalcony.com and www.tovafeldshu.com. That's T-O-V-A-H-F-E-L-D-S-H-U-H.com. The book that Tova Felchu recommends is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.